after yesterday, uh, first of all, thank you for coming and, uh, and for coming to the symposium. Um, after yesterday, I, was, uh, I enjoyed the presentations, but I was a little concerned that uh, we didn't quite understand what the problem was with the way we think about the scriptures. Um, did any of you go to Jeff Kloa's presentation this morning? If you did, then you got what the problem is. <laughs> I, he helped us see that we don't have the original text, first of all. And to treat the Bible like sometimes we do, and when I say we, I mean Bible-believing Christians, uh, leads to a variety of problems. And I want to share some of those with you um, here as we get started. Uh, Dr. Kloa talked a lot about the textual issues. We don't have the manuscripts necessarily. And even the, the manuscript we do have is not exactly the, not the same across the board. I'm not going to talk about manuscripts and codices because I'm a parish pastor and I trust that Chloe is doing that work for us. Um, but I will share with you a couple of, before I get started into what I actually prepared to say, I want to share with you a couple of uh, anecdotal uh, experiences that I've had that helped me, have led me to believe and led me to do the, the work I did, um, thinking that there's a problem with the way we think about what the Bible is. Um, I want to tell you first of all, and this will be a little bit, like I said, very anecdotal, but uh, I tell stories when I preach sometimes, so that's kind of where I'm at. There's a guy named Kevin in Nebraska. I went to Concordia Seward. Uh, Kevin was a, a big donor to the athletic program. He donated most of the weights in the weight room. Uh, really great guy. He was always down there uh, when we were there. On the ba- I was on the basketball team, and he was always very supportive of us. Um, but no one really knew how Kevin got connected to the, the Concordia. Uh, I met him, I, I ran into him at a, at a gathering the spring, I think, of my fourth year. And we started talking and uh, came to realize uh, he, he got connected to Concordia because he was a, used to be a Lutheran school teacher. His parents were Lutheran school teachers. And uh, so I asked, well, where are you teaching at? And he said, well, I'm, I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, I said, well, why not? And he said, well, God betrayed me. Uh, and I thought, well... I'm studying a pre-SIM student. Well, how did God betray you? Uh, and he said, uh, God spoke to me in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And here's what he said. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And he told us about the hope God gave him. She was very cute. And this hope was God's fulfillment of his promise in Jeremiah 29, 11 to him. And then this hope cheated on him. And this hope left him. And he read that as God going back on his promise. Uh, and he left the church. Now, I don't know where Kevin is at today, but I think there's a problem with the way he was thinking about what this book is. Uh, a, a second anecdote. Uh, I've got a DCO at our church, a director of Christian outreach, for about four more days. She just took a call, <laughs> and Sunday's her last day. Uh, she's big on helping our congregation reach out. She's done an outstanding job. And she ordered a curriculum to help teach our people how to share their faith. Um, and it came in the mail one day when she wasn't there, and I'm not in the habit of opening up her mail. <laughs> but when it's not addressed to anybody, we don't have a secretary, so I open the mail. And I, I saw this. She ordered this, this uh a curriculum called Share Jesus Without Fear. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll see what, what she's going to teach our people about uh, reaching out. And I, I turned to the table of contents, and there's a chapter called The Power of Scripture. 
And I thought, well, I'm kind of interested in the Bible. <laughs> Let's see what this book says about the power of Scripture. It goes on to give kind of the directions. Here's how you witness. What you've got to do is you've got to have a Bible, and you, you highlight a couple of key passages. And then what you need to do is you need to go to your unbelieving friend, and you give them the Bible, and you have them read it. It's really important that they're the ones who read it. Um, and then I quoted this on your handout. It's uh, number seven on the, the discussion questions. Here's what it says after it tells you to hand the Bible to the non-believer. Uh, your only job is to turn pages and to stay out of God's way. The Holy Spirit will help your friend understand more from a simple reading of a verse than any explanation or sermon you could have preached. I read that and I thought... I'm not sure that's the way the Bible's supposed to be used. Um, I share those with you because I did my doctoral work on the theology of Scripture, and largely I did it because I was not comfortable with the way I conceived of the Scriptures. Uh, I saw a lot of fundamentalism in, in the way I approached these questions and the way I tried to defend what I believed, and I wasn't very comfortable about it, and that led me to look a lot more closely at... Um, and why we say what we say about the scriptures. With that kind of as introduction, I'll get to what I actually prepared to say <laughs> to you today. And I'm going to share a couple of quotes to get started here. When a student asked him near the end of his life to share the most important thought ever to pass through his mind, Karl Barth said this, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. In a sermon preached in, 19, in 1545, Luther said this, Holy Scripture is the garment which our Lord Christ has put on and in which He lets Himself be seen and found. In his writing against the Valentinians at the end of the second century, Irenaeus said the Scriptures were like a mosaic image of the King. Every passage is a piece of the mosaic to give us this image of this King. At the beginning of the second century, the Philadelphians questioned whether or not Christ could be found in the Old Testament. Ignatius said this, To my mind, it is Jesus Christ who is the original documents. The inviolable archives are His cross and death and His resurrection and the faith that came by Him. These statements, all made in very different contexts, reflect a fundamental Christian conviction about the writings we call Holy Scripture. And we could summarize this conviction by saying, Christ is the center of the Scriptures. Now I was asked here today to talk about what exactly we mean when we say Christ is the center of the Scriptures. And I want to start out by pointing out that when we say Christ is the center of the Scriptures, we're not just talking about what the Scriptures are about. That's part of it. But even more... The statement that Christ is the center of the scriptures reflects a certain conception of, of what we think this book is. A certain way of thinking about what is the Bible and what is it for. And my reason for thinking this is an important thing to consider is that this, this whole symposium has been about interpreting the scriptures, right? I'm talking about how do we interpret it theologically, how do we interpret it in a community. Um, standing behind this, I believe, is a prior question, and that is, well, what are these writings we're interpreting? What what are the scriptures? Um, and along with that, what are they for? And so to help us reflect on this, that's what I want to think about here with you this afternoon. So I want you to think about with me, what is the Bible? What are these writings? Before we get to reading them um, as scripture. And to do this, I've divided the presentation basically into two parts. In the first part, we're going to take a look at how Christians have conceived of the scriptures 
in modern times. And I will argue that there have been basically two ways of thinking about the scriptures in modern times. Uh, And we're going to pay specific attention to how Christ fits in to these conceptions. Um, I want to let you know from the outset that I'm going to be critical of both modern ways of thinking about the Bible. Uh, I'm not going to be critical of the scriptures themselves. That's a really important distinction. Um, But I'm going to be critical of how we think about these writings. Um, After we've looked at the two modern ways of doing this, we're going to spend some time thinking about a third way of conceiving of these scriptures. And hopefully we'll have some time to talk after that. Um, My hope is to convince you that this third conception is more consistent with the biblical biblical narrative, uh, more in keeping with the theology of the Reformation, and more reflective of the fundamental Christian conviction that Christ is the center of of the scriptures. And so let's begin by looking at the two modern ways we've thought of what this book is. Uh, The first I'll refer to as the critical conception. Uh, You probably know where this is going. Started in the 17th, 18th centuries in Europe, the Bible began to be viewed as another historical collection of documents um, driven by rationalism and historical skepticism. Uh, Errors were found, mistakes were found, contradictions were found in the scriptures. Um, instead of revering these writings as the word of God as Christians had done for 1500 years or so they began thinking of the Bible as just another book Gordon Kaufman summarizes this really well in an essay he wrote called What Shall We Do With the Bible in 1971 I'll quote it, it's kind of a paragraph here for centuries as the very word of God to man the Bible has provided the context of meaning with which Christian man indeed western man generally has appropriated and understood his existence and set his course in life. But this is all over with and gone. Though we may recognize and be grateful for its contributions to our culture, the Bible no longer has unique authority for Western man. It has become a great but archaic monument in our midst. It is a reminder of where we once were but no longer are. It contains glorious literature, important historical documents, exalted ethical teachings, but it is no longer the Word of God if there is a God, uh, to man. Uh, There's a wide range of conclusions that people draw who conceive of the Bible as this historical document with its uh, concurrent flaws and mistakes. But the one piece of agreement is that it's not the Word of God anymore. Uh, One of the modern conceptions. Um, So how does Christ fit into this conception of what the Bible is? Uh, Oftentimes... The scriptures are set against Christ. I've got a quote from Carl Broughton on your handout. He says this, The ultimate authority of Christian theology is not the biblical canon as such, but the gospel of Jesus Christ, to which the scriptures bear witness. Jesus Christ himself is the Lord of the scriptures, the source and scope of its authority. And so here's how holders of the critical conception think about Christ. Uh, The scriptures bear witness to Christ, They might lead to an encounter with Christ, but make no mistake, Christ is the Word, not these writings. Now, the problem with this uh, conception, way of thinking about what the Scriptures are, is that the image they portray of Christ, if the Scriptures are uh, flawed and fallible and mistaken like any other document, the image they portray of Christ starts to get kind of fuzzy. So did he walk on the water? Uh, Probably not. Uh, Did he turn water into wine? 
Unfortunately, probably not. Uh, did he die for our sins? Maybe. Did he actually rise from the dead? Uh, it's hard to say. Um, when you carry this way of thinking about the scriptures to its logical conclusion, and Van Austin Harvey points out that frequently it's not carried to its logical conclusion, but when it is, you're left with the version of the gospel that Robert Funk gives us. And I'll quote Robert Funk's version of the gospel. We no longer believe that Jesus was born of Mary without the benefit of male sperm. We no longer think of him literally as performing miracles like walking on the water or stilling the storm. We no longer believe that he fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. We're relatively certain that the first reports of his resurrection were luminous apparitions prompted by grief. We think the empty tomb stories are a late and fictional attempt to certify a bodily resurrection. The ascension of Jesus into heaven can only be a fiction. We doubt that Jesus died to atone for the sins of the world resulting from Adam's original error. And then he concludes, The decay of the old symbolic universe is so far advanced that many believers no longer find such dogmas interesting enough even to discuss. When the Bible's viewed as any other ancient book subject to modern notions of historical skepticism and rationalism, we end up with a very different Christ. That's the problem. Um, and we end up with a very different gospel. And this way of thinking about what the scriptures are does not cohere with historic Christianity. And so what about the other modern way of thinking about what the Bible is? Uh, we'll call this other way of thinking about the Bible the inerrant conception. Now, according to the inerrant conception, and obviously these two conceptions in a lot of ways are just review for all of you, but I think it's important to be clear about it. According to the inerrant conception, the scriptures are unlike all other human writings. What makes them unique is that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And here's the important part. Inspired means first and foremost that they are perfectly true. Every single word, every single letter is equally inspired, equally inerrant, and this is grounded on passages that we've talked about already several times. 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Peter 1.21. This is what the Bible is. It's inspired, and inspired means perfect. Now, Christians, since the beginning, believed the Bible was the Word of God, and therefore uniquely authoritative and true. But the formalization of this way of thinking about what the Bible is, is the result, I will argue, of the orthodox, the orthodox dogmaticians in the 17th century, the way they, they formalized this conception of the scriptures. And they made it an official doctrine, the doctrine of inspiration. And so let's, let's consider how Christ fits into this way of thinking about what the Bibles are. Okay? Well, unfortunately, when you look at Bible-believing Christians across the board, uh, oftentimes Christ is simply left out the discussion. Uh, and, and now here's where I want to ask you to think not just about the way we in the Missouri Synod have thought about Christ and the scriptures, but Christianity in general. In America, at least, most of the time, Bible believers have spent their time and their energy and their zeal on defending biblical inerrancy and biblical inspiration. And then, after that's been sufficiently established, then we talk about, well, Christ is the center. Unfortunately, not everybody gets to that second part. Um, now, there's a reason why so many 
practicing Christians have landed on this side of the modern categories, the modern debate. Uh, the value of the inerrant conception, the way of thinking about the Bible this way, is it protects the historic gospel against the critics. And that's no small thing. I know less than the gospel is at stake in that. Um, but time has shown, uh, and, I, and I, very personally time has shown to me, that thinking of the Bible first and foremost as perfect and true has some downfalls of its own. Um, as Franzman put, if you read the article that Franzman wrote in the Concordia Journal this spring, he, he described that defenders of biblical inerrancy tend to behave like a society for the preservation of the perfect arrow, uh, where the, the, the prime point of discussion and the most important thing to talk about is biblical inerrancy. Uh, too often, uh, especially among non-Lutheran Bible believers, uh, Christ crucified becomes one more thing that God has revealed in his perfect book. And it doesn't take a, a, a great list of descriptions to identify the legalism and the fundamentalism and the terribly selective acontextual interpretation uh, that results from that. My two anecdotes at the beginning, are, especially the first one from Jeremiah 29, is, is unfortunately not rare. Now, in recent decades, theologians from a variety of denominations and traditions, including the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, have noticed problems with both modern conceptions. Uh, a lot of people recognize problems with the critical conception, no less than Carl Broughton and Robert Jensen write this. The historical critical method was originally devised and welcomed as the great emancipator of the Bible from ecclesiastical dogma and blind faith. Some practitioners of the method now sense that the Bible may have meanwhile become its victim. It's true. The Pope, no less than the Pope, before he was the Pope, back when he was Ratzinger, uh, he said this, To speak of the crisis of the historical critical method today is practically a truism. This despite the fact that he had gotten off to so optimistic a start. Uh, Gerhard Meyer's book, The End of the Historical Critical Method, shows pretty convincingly there's problems with that way of thinking about what the Bible is. Um, but what about the inerrant conception? What are the problems with that? Well, at its foundation, the problem is that Jesus is not at its foundation. Um, Robert Preuss was onto this in his book, Doctrine of Inspiration. Uh, Robert Preuss is one of the great defenders of the Orthodox theology of Scripture. But he admits this near the end of his book. Yes, the power... I've got this quote on your sheet too, I think. Yes, the powerful emphasis of a Luther upon the centrality of justification is wanting in some of the theological literature of the 17th century. It's true that their treatment of the sola scriptura is more detached from the article of justification than it might have been. He's being kind of gracious there, uh, in my opinion. Uh, they talked about scripture without talking about Christ from the very beginning. And Robert Preuss notes that's a problem. In other words, Christ is not at the center. Uh, Herman Zasse saw something similar. If you were in Chloe's thing, you heard some quotes from Herman Zasse. Uh, he was critical of the doctrine of inspiration because it neglected the Spirit's work of pointing to Christ. It talked about the Spirit ensuring the truth of the Scriptures, but not the Spirit pointing to Christ. And so he argued, I apologize for putting the German on there, he argues that we need an Einoius Verständnis, a new understanding 
of that necessary article of faith, a holy scripture. Um, now, to say that Christ has been left out of the doctrine of inspiration at its foundation or the inerrant conception um, is not to say that he's been completely left out of the picture. Uh, here's where the subtitle to my presentation comes in. As I've thought about my own conception, my own way of thinking about what the Bible is, I've noticed a couple of practices that seem designed to keep Christ at the center. In 1901, the first red-letter edition of the Bible was published by a layman named Louis Klopich. Now, most of us have one of these red-letter Bibles, right? In these editions, Jesus' words are highlighted. They're separate from all the other words. Um, now, clearly this is intended to highlight Jesus as something special. You might even say central. But when you think about it a little bit, and I spent the last couple of years thinking about this kind of stuff, and so it crossed my mind, I started wondering some, about some of the questions that practice raises. For instance, what does it mean for the words that are printed in plain old black? Are they somehow less central, less significant? Um, and what does it say about Jesus' actions? Are his words more important than his actions? Um, as interesting, Klopish in his original red letter Bible uh, put a red asterisk at every Old Testament passage that pointed to Christ. Uh, I haven't seen that in subsequent red letter editions. Um, another practice that seems designed to keep Christ at the center can be seen in our liturgical tradition. Uh, please rise for the reading of the gospel. How many of you do that in your congregation? Yeah, we do it every Sunday. Um, I never questioned that until a lay person asked me one Sunday during Bible class, which is right after worship, and he raised a really good question. He said, well, why do we rise for the reading of the gospel when the epistle lesson today proclaimed Christ so much more clearly? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a Good question. And I thought, well, I'm going to find out why we started doing that. I still haven't been able to find out. I, if you happen to know where that practice began, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing from you. Uh, but it, 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 that question got me wondering. Uh, when we rise for the gospel, what does that say about our conception of the epistle? Or the Old Testament? Or the psalm? Or the sermon? Uh, and, and what about those gospel readings when there's very little, if any, gospel? <laughs> Now, I don't raise these things to start a debate about whether we should continue printing red-letter Bibles or rising for the reading of the gospel, although I do think about it every time I have our congregation stand for the gospel. Uh, we could have probably an interesting conversation about these things. But my point is that these practices don't solve the problem. They offer some, albeit unclear, sense that Christ is central to the Scriptures, but they don't help us conceive of the Bible, what it is and what it is for, in a way that is grounded on Christ and His death and His resurrection and His return. And they're more like uh, folk remedies uh, than substantive solutions. What is needed, I contend, is a different way of thinking about what the Bible is and what it is for. When asked, what is the Bible? Our answer must be grounded in and flow from the gospel of Christ crucified, not set against it. Our answer also, however, must affirm the truthfulness and the reliability of the scriptures without relegating the gospel to one more revealed perfect truth that God has given us in His perfect book. When 
What we need is we need a conception of the scriptures so that when we think about and when we talk about and when we read and when we study the Bible, even our youngest children, even my two-year-old, August, should know that Christ is the center of the scriptures. And so we need to have a different way of thinking about what these important writings are. The remainder of this presentation, now I'm going to move on to the second part, is my suggestion for how we think about what the scriptures are and what they're for. And I'm going to call it a cruciform conception of the scriptures. And the cruciform conception of the scriptures begins with this logic. If the Bible is the word of God, and if Jesus is also the word of God, then before we think about the Bible, we should spend some time thinking about the word of God. Walter Rares was on to this. He wrote an essay back in 54 in the CTM called The Word in the Word. We need to talk about the Word before we talk about the Scriptures. And when we take a closer look at the Word in the biblical narrative, we see that the Word encompasses much more than just the biblical writings. Long before there was a written Word, God was speaking through His prophets and His apostles. Long before there were prophets or apostles, there was an eternal word through whom all things were created and, all, and for whom all things were created. The God of the biblical narrative is from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, a God of word, to quote Telford work. Now as we look at this speaking of the God of word, we notice that God does not normally speak directly from his own mouth. He does occasionally, but that's not usually how he does that. Most of the time in the biblical narrative, God speaks to his creatures by speaking through his creatures. The Old Testament concept for this is the prophet. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, God sends prophets to speak in his name, and he gives them his word and his spirit so that they can do this important work. Now, the word of God that he speaks is unlike any word that human beings speak. It's, it's as much as and more as our words. Um, it does things. It does powerful things. Isaiah 55, God accomplishes his will through his word. And his will is usually one of two things in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes God speaks his word to condemn and destroy Once I started doing this work, it struck me how many times in the Old Testament when you hear word of God, you hear this kind of destruction language. A couple of them. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Hosea 6, 5. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Luther described this word of God as the thunderbolt of God. But God also uses his word to do another thing, and that is to give life. He used his word in Genesis 1 to give life to all creatures. In Ezekiel 37, he gave life to a valley full of dead bones through his word, the word spoken by the prophet, in the power of the Spirit, in Ezekiel 37. Isaiah 40, God sends the prophet to speak comfort, to speak comfort to his people. We could summarize God's speaking in the Old Testament by saying that God uses His Word to destroy and rebuild, to condemn and heal, to kill and make alive. 
Now, it's, this theological, it's, it's in this theological context that John identifies Jesus as the Word made flesh. As the Word of God in person. Jesus himself did what the prophets had been doing for centuries. Jesus was sent by the Father to speak his living and active Word. Like the prophets, Jesus called the people to repent and to turn back to God. Like the prophets, Jesus was led by the Spirit to speak the truth. But Jesus was not just any other prophet. Unlike the prophets, Jesus himself forgave sins. Unlike the prophets who were only led by the Spirit, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. He bore the Spirit. He gave the Spirit. Unlike the prophets, Jesus claimed to be one with the Father from all eternity. He claimed to be the prophet, the divine spokesperson, the Word of God Himself. Now, as the narrative goes, some believed His Word, the Word from the Word, and they believed. They received life, they received forgiveness, they received salvation. Others rejected Him and put Him to death on the cross. Here is what makes this conception of the Word of God and also this conception of the Scriptures cruciform. Jesus, the personal Word of God, was crucified for what He said. He claimed to forgive sins. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be before Abraham. And John 19.7 shows us that it was this claim that led Him to be crucified. Now, if Jesus had remained in the grave, his claim to be God would have been dismissed. His promises of forgiveness and salvation would have been proved false. Uh, This would make us, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, the most pitiful group of people. You guys would be even more pitiful because you paid to be here. Um, (laughs) It would make us the most pitiful group of people on earth uh, if Christ had remained in the grave. Um, But, Paul continues, uh, Jesus rose. Now, here is the only foundation for the Christian faith and the most solid grounds from which we should be thinking about what the Scriptures are. In His resurrection from the dead, Jesus was vindicated by the Father for everything that He did and said. This includes what He said about the Old Testament writings, that they cannot be broken, that they testify to Him. It includes what He said about His apostles, what they would do, that all people would believe in them through their word, that they would teach everything He commanded them, that they would be led by His Spirit of truth. The Christian faith, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and for our purposes, the Christian theology of Scripture, stands or falls with Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And John 2.22 is very instructive here. In John 2, we hear about Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And Jesus said this in verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now at the time, we know they, were think- they thought he was talking about the building. Um, but after the resurrection, they understood what Jesus was talking about. Here's what John says in John 2.22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Did you catch that? After the resurrection, they believed Jesus' word and the scripture. It's because he rose from the dead that they believed him and these writings 
or the Word of God. At this point, I want to say just a word about how the inerrant conception has typically defended the truth of the Scriptures. Because as I said earlier, we need a conception of the Scriptures that affirms that it's reliable and true, but at the same time, it's not treating the Gospel as some piece of information that's been revealed. Now, the problem with the inerrant conception is not that it defends biblical truthfulness or reliability. The problem is how it makes its case. The doctrine of inspiration, for instance, leans very heavily on the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Here's how the thinking generally goes. We believe the Bible is the Word of God and perfectly true because the Spirit testifies through the Scriptures that they are the Word of God. Once again, Robert Preuss saw a problem with this way of thinking about this. Listen to what he says once again in the Doctrine of Inspiration. The manner in which the old dogmaticians have treated the testimonium spiritus sancti internum is perhaps unfortunate. They have taken this doctrine almost exclusively in reference to the, Holy, to the authority of Scripture, and they speak of it far less often in reference to Christ as the object of saving faith. And then he goes on. It's quite clear that the dogmaticians' emphasis upon the testimony of the Spirit witnessing to the authority of Scripture cannot be found in Luther. A second way of defending the Scriptures, from Pieper's Dogmatics. This is in his defense of the authority of the Scriptures. He writes this, All divine works bear the divine stamp. By which reason, we can see that they are not the product of man. One will hardly mistake an artificial flower for a natural one. Now, Scripture is as much a work of God, God's book, as is the created universe. As a natural, rational observation of the creation reveals God as its creator, so too a natural, rational study of the Holy Scriptures points to God as its author. And then he goes on to make this point, which is even more dubious in, in my opinion. When we compare the Holy Scriptures according to the content and style of other Bibles in the world, for example with the Koran, with other sacred books of the East, when we think of the victorious march of Christianity through the world, though its teaching is an offense to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks, when we recall the astounding effects of the religion taught in the Scriptures on individuals and whole nations, then a reasonable reason cannot do otherwise than conclude that the Scriptures must be divine and confess that it is more reasonable to grant the divinity of the Scriptures than to deny it. So if I read Pieper correctly, because Christianity has grown so much, therefore we should conclude the Bible is the Word of God. Now, I haven't checked the latest stats, uh, but I've heard that Islam is growing, <laughs> and so is Mormonism. Uh, that's not a helpful way to defend the truthfulness of the scriptures. The problem with, with both what Pieper has there and what the dogmaticians have on the internal testimony is that they're defending the truthfulness of the scriptures without grounding that defense in the resurrection or in Christ. Uh, we're no longer at that point building our conception of the scriptures on the church's one foundation. But I want to come back to the biblical narrative because the cruciform conception of the scriptures doesn't end at the resurrection. In fact, for those New Testament exegetes, it's only getting started. After Jesus rose, but before he returned to the Father, Jesus commissioned his apostles to continue his work, his work of speaking. 
He sent them to speak his word with his authority until his return. To speak everything he commanded them, Matthew 28. To forgive sins in his name, John 20. To equip them for this work, he breathed his spirit on them. The same spirit, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11. The same spirit of Christ that led the prophets of old. He breathed his spirit on them to lead them into all truth. So here's how it happened. At Pentecost, by the power of the same spirit that led the prophets of old, the apostles began proclaiming the word of Christ. It is through the word of Christ, Paul says, Romans 10, 17, faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. I want to talk just a little bit about that of Christ because it's an, I think it's a subjective genitive and an objective genitive. Let me say a couple things about that. The, the message spoken by the apostles and subsequent preachers is the word of Christ, and that's a subjective genitive. That is, it's Christ's own word. Christ continues his mission as his prophets and the preachers they sent, his apostles and the preachers that the church sent, spoke his word. They taught what he taught them. They forgave sins in his name. They spoke the truth that they had been given by his spirit. Their message was also the word of Christ, and this time it's an objective genitive. The word the apostles proclaimed was also about Jesus. We preach Christ crucified, Paul said. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, Peter says. And the word of Christ is a word about Christ, about his death and his resurrection and his return for us. Now, to this point, I've said very little about the scriptures themselves, especially the New Testament, if you've been following. And that's kind of the point. Before we talk about, or before we even think about what the Bible is, we need to be clear about who Jesus is. Now, we get that from the scriptures, in part at least, from the scriptures, from the traditions, from the creeds, from the hymns that have been handed down. Uh, but before we formulate our doctrine of Scripture, then we need to be clear about the fact that Jesus is the personal Word of God. We also need to be clear that God sent prophets and apostles and that He continues to send preachers and all Christians to speak His living and active Word. So now we're ready to start thinking about the Scriptures themselves, especially the New Testament. Shortly after Jesus' ascension, False teachers appeared and began teaching things that were contrary. And Paul talks about them in Galatians chapter 1. At the same time, the church that had heard this message, remember there's no scriptures for at least 15, 20 years, the same church that heard this message, this spoken word, that had believed it, that had been shaped by it, this same church began gathering together definitive written versions of the message they had heard and been shaped by and believed. They preserved these definitive written versions. They passed them down in the church as definitive instances of the apostolic word of Christ. And this, these collections became the standard by which all subsequent teaching and preaching would be judged. Christians recognize them as inspired because they do the work of the Spirit. 
which is to lead us to Christ and all that that entails. As an aside, um, I'm happy to hear that I've been told the next year's symposium is about the relationship between scriptures and preaching. And as I've thought about the relationship between scriptures and preaching, and I think about it every Sunday, I'm already kind of thinking about it for this Sunday, I've come to the conclusion that a sermon is not biblical just because it's about the Bible, or even less so because it quotes a Bible passage. A biblical sermon, I'm convinced, is a sermon that does what the Bible does, that does what Jesus did, what he sent his apostles and all preachers and all Christians to do. But we'll talk more about that next year. With this dogmatic foundation in the Word of God, getting the Word of God straight before we move to our theology of Scripture, here's how I suggest we think about what the Bible is and what it is for. First, we recognize Christ as the personal Word, the one through whom God spoke ultimately, decisively, definitively, and for all time. Second, we recognize that God speaks through human creatures, through prophets, through apostles, through preachers, through my wife as she teaches my children and as she punishes them and as she forgives them. And what of the Bible? What is it? What is it for? Well, rather than thinking of it as first and foremost a perfect book or even worse, an imperfect book, And rather than thinking of it as a book that gives us true information, primarily, or worse than that, partially true information, I suggest we think of the Bible as the written form of the living and active Word of God. These scriptures are the definitive versions of the apostolic word that they were sent to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. They direct us to the personal word, And they serve the proclamation of the word. With this conception, you can never talk about scriptures as the word of God without also talking about Jesus and without also talking about the gospel that we have been sent to proclaim. This means that the first and most important thing we say about the scriptures is basically what John said at the end of his gospel. On John 20, 31, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Or in other words, Christ is the center of the scriptures. Thank you.